Every career is a journey. Every leader has a story. Welcome to Journey to the Energy C-Suite, where we look at the strategies and techniques that turn solid leaders into top executives. This is your place to hear practical wisdom and guidance from real people who know what it takes. With your host, Ryan Sanford. Hey again, everybody, and welcome back to Journey to the Energy C-Suite on the Oil & Gas Global Network. I am your host, Ryan Sanford. I appreciate you pressing that play button again. I am really excited to bring on a guest today uh, that I think everyone is going to be very interested to hear from. He is one of the founders and retired chairman of the investment firm Tudor Pickering & Holt. He's currently leading the Houston Energy Transition Initiative, along with the Greater Houston Partnership. He serves on many boards and philanthropic organizations. I could say a lot more about him, but I'm going to stop there. Mr. Bobby Tudor, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Ryan, for having me. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And first of all, I think congratulations are in order about your recent retirement from TPH. Well, thank you. It was a great uh, 15-year run. Uh, and um, now time for a time for a new chapter. A lot of interesting things happening in the energy world, and I intend right to be right in the middle of all that. So uh, I'm I'm looking forward to what's next. Well, it's no small decision to step away from a firm that had so much success um, that that you helped start and made such an impact in the industry. I wonder if you could, for a moment, take us back to those early days, making the decision to leave Goldman Sachs and and go out on your own with your partners. What what are the big memories that stand out about that time? Look, I, I had a great twenty years at at Goldman Sachs. It's a fantastic place with a lot of really really high quality people. But, you know, it was great before I got there. It was great while I was there. It's great now. <laughs> I, I kind of never felt like there was anything that I individually was going to do there that would truly move the needle. Uh, and I had a hankering to do something more entrepreneurial. So uh, I left with the idea of starting a, an energy-focused boutique investment bank. And uh, that is what I did. Uh, I, uh, I was lucky enough to get introduced by a a client to Dan Pickering, who Dan had started a little uh, energy research boutique at the time called Pickering Energy Partners. And Dan and I saw the the opportunity to, to build a, a new kind of firm together. And so we jumped into it. And then uh, at the end of that year, I convinced Maynard Holt, an old colleague of mine from, from Goldman Sachs, to, to join us. Uh, we put together a team and, and uh, kind of got after it. And better lucky than good, as soon after we got started, the financial crisis hit. Most of our competitors went into the bunker. We were young and growing, and the shale revolution was happening. And we kind of got out in front of that and established a reputation and 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 built a really good business. So it was uh, it was great fun. We in 2016 we merged it into Perella Weinberg Partners, a New York based uh, investment bank that that has uh, very broad industry. Um, uh, exposure. And so we were the the energy part of PWP, if you will, continued to operate under the, the TPH brand. And uh, and so that was five years ago. And and um, Maynard and I decided it was a good time to good time to go. Uh, and so we both told him a year ago we were leaving and and uh, that became effective at the end of this calendar year. So we had a great time at TPH, uh, worked with a lot of fantastic people, uh, built it from you know from nothing to something, uh, so very satisfying and and hopefully we made a difference in the industry too. So love doing it. 
Well, what a legacy uh, your firm did leave. And, and I know when we say retirement, that doesn't really mean retirement. Uh, there's so many things that you're still involved in, as you mentioned earlier. One of the big things is helping lead the uh, the Houston Energy Transition Initiative. And uh, everybody's been talking about this for the last uh, year, 18 months. Um, there's a lot of work that, that has been going on behind the scenes that you've been leading. Um, I like how you framed up our challenge in a very succinct way in the, the keynote speech that you gave last summer. Um, and it was really about meeting the world's energy needs, but also reducing emissions and leading the way to lower carbon future. Um, I wonder... Uh, if you take a moment now, that was what, uh, seven, eight months ago when you gave that speech. Um, is the challenge still framed that way? Is there anything new that, that we should be thinking about? Uh, the challenge is very much still framed that way. Um, and I wasn't the first person to think of it that way, by, by the way. But um, I think too often the challenge gets framed as a, as a singular challenge, which is to say we have a, we have a, a, a climate change issue. And that is true. We do have a climate change issue, but it's not a singular challenge. It's a dual challenge because if the, well, while we need to uh, address uh, CO2 emissions that are impacting the climate, we also need to continue to deliver reliable, affordable, and ever cleaner energy to a growing world. And so you can't look at either of those in isolation, given the nature of the challenges associated with them. We have, we have to look at them uh, together. So it's a it's a big big challenge arguably you know the the challenge of the current generation and i feel pretty strongly that that we in houston have a, a really important role to play uh in in both in both of those challenges uh and and we need to kind of marshal our resources and creativity and and expertise uh so that we will continue to be the intellectual capital of the world's energy business even as the world's energy systems evolve over the course of the next several de decades, so that's the challenge for Houston: uh, is to is to uh, come out of the back end of this uh, as the energy capital of the world. In in that same speech that you gave, you talked about three factors that are really going to influence the pace of change, and one was the changing composition of energy sources to meet the global demand. The second one was investor sentiment and, and societal influence. And then the third one was proposed government action. I wonder um, if you could talk a little bit about um, the impact of those and ha have those factors um, you know, been uh, evolving at all in the last several months? Yeah. So, you know, the pendulum really does swing on some of this stuff, right? The, the pendulum swings as it regards investor appetite for the traditional oil and gas sector, as well as investor appetite for uh, for newer forms of, of energy, uh, it swings within government, and we're we're seeing it right now, right? There, there's nothing like a geopolitical crisis uh, like we're seeing in in, uh, in the Ukraine and in, in Western Europe to get people focused on the fact that oh, actually, this fossil fuel stuff really does matter, <laughs> uh, and, and I and I think that's actually been a healthy a healthy swing because it reminds people the degree to which we actually are still highly, highly dependent on, on fossil fuels. Um, you know, every president in, in my memory in the U.S., the first time you get gasoline prices approaching $3.50 a gallon or $4 a gallon, they start calling around to oil producers saying, we need you to produce more. <laughs> Uh, that's true in Republican administrations, and it's true in Democratic administrations. Yeah. Because one thing politicians know is when people start having to pay a lot more for their energy, they tend to hold politicians responsible. Mm -hmm. So, that look, there are a million moving pieces here, 
Um, we're in a period right now of very high commodity prices in, in the U.S. And, and uh, I, I would argue that that has more to do with investor sentiment than it does with uh, kind of government policy, even though obviously the current administration has been quite vocal uh, about wanting to, quote, keep it in the ground. The fact of the matter is what's kept it in the ground is investors cutting off the purse strings. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I, I, I remind people that that while policy does matter, markets and, and commodity prices tend to matter more. You know, uh, during the Obama administration, for example, U.S. onshore production, you know, more than doubled. And it's not because President Obama wanted that to happen. Similarly, in the Trump administration, U.S. coal production got cut by about 40 percent. And that's not because President Trump wanted U.S. coal production to go down by 40 percent. He, he, he wanted the opposite. And my point there is simply that market forces are very, very powerful things and often much more powerful, frankly, than than government and policy forces. And so they both matter. And we've seen that in spades here over the course of the past eight years. And I think we'll continue to see it in spades going forward. Well, you mentioned the uh, the notion that Houston does have a responsibility to lead the way. I mean, Houston has always been known as sort of the hub for the oil and gas industry. Now we're thinking about it more broadly as energy. And uh, you you also talked about in that in that keynote speech last year about leveraging the inherent competitive advantages in Houston. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those. Well, uh, with being the the energy capital of the world comes. Uh, comes some real competitive advantages, not the least of which is, is simply the intellectual capital that sits here. There are more, for, so for example, the inter, I would argue that the energy transition is mostly about chemistry, mm. <laughs> right, and, and molecules. And there are more chemical engineers per capita in greater Houston, Texas than in any other major metro uh, in the world, by, by a lot, uh, by the way. Uh, not just per capita, but in the aggregate uh, as well. And uh, and so we we just have a lot of intellectual capacity that that sits here that has made us you know the leader globally in, in the energy space and that that intellectual capacity is very much needed in helping to address these these dual challenges. Uh, we also have big hard asset advantages, right? We we sit uh, adjacent to uh, the nation's largest port by tonnage. We, 60% of the U.S.'s hydrogen pipelines sit in greater Houston, Texas, 60%. I mean, that's a stunning, mm. a stunning number. So when people talk about the hydrogen revolution and, and uh, the ability to, to uh, produce green hydrogen from renewable sources, well, you still got to move it somewhere. You got to get it to places that it's needed. And that requires pipelines. And guess what? They're never going to get a pipeline, a hydrogen pipeline built from New York to Boston. Mm. Never. It's not going to happen. Uh, whereas we have a lot of them here already, plus we can build more. We know how to do that. So that's a good example of, of um, a, a built-in physical advantage, if you will. So we've got a, we've got a lot going for us uh, here, um, but we need to grab the steering wheel you know, on the, on the topic and, and decide that, in, in fact, this is, these challenges are, are challenges that aren't likely to get solved without us. And we have a, a responsibility uh, as industry leaders and as citizens of the world 
to, to do that. And I'm very, very confident we will. There's great things happening across the space in our region, and we have a lot of momentum around it, and I'm convinced it will continue to grow. When people think about Houston, they don't often think about Houston in the same way that they would think about Silicon Valley or Boston in terms of an innovation uh, city. Um, I've heard from a few other folks who have been involved in some of the work uh, that your group at Greater Houston Partnership has been doing and some of the interviews that they did. And um, they, they see a path where Houston can become an innovation hub in the future if we, if we do things the right way. I wonder if you can share your perspective on that. Well, I would argue it actually is an innovation hub in, in energy. Uh, it's just that a lot of that innovation is sort of buried, if you will, within our really big companies. So I would argue that if you if you added up every true R&D dollar that's happening in, uh, in the energy space, broadly defined, in, including uh, newer forms of energy, there's no place in the world that would that would match those aggregate dollars to what's happening here. It just happens to be buried in in Shell or in Chevron or in Schlumberger or in Kinder Morgan or in in um, Dow, right? Uh, in the in their in their R and D uh, divisions, and so our challenge is to is to connect that uh, to a, a broader energy innovation ecosystem that we need to build out, and we've made we've made good steps in that regard, getting Greentown Labs to. To, to make Houston their their second North American hub after after Boston was an important step. Um, the participation of our universities in, in all of this also really matters and, and Rice's commitment to building the, the ION uh, Innovation uh, Center in, in, uh, in Midtown in Houston has been a terrific step as well. Um, but we still need to connect venture capital and, and private equity to this innovation ecosystem just to make it more robust and, and more active. So we have a ways to go, but uh, we're, we now have really good momentum around that, and, and I'm convinced that it will grow. Well, it's been estimated that by 2050, Houston could benefit by you know estimates of 600,000 or so jobs uh, based on this transition initiative that's going on. Um, is that is that in the ballpark in terms of how you're thinking about it? Yeah. Uh, we we um, with we engage McKinsey, uh, the consulting firm, to help us think this through and and um, look. It's it's a model and. Mm-hmm. Those of us who who live with financial models know that it's you know to some degree it's garbage in garbage out right it's just a model but I think directionally we're pretty confident that it's it's correct which which is to say there is fantastic opportunity around new business formation related to the energy transition the question is just where does it happen <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> we want it to happen here and if it does we're going to have fantastic job growth associated with just for what it's worth, we don't think the incumbent industry is going away. It's going to remain really, really important to Houston, to our region, and to the world for quite a long period of time. But it's highly like it's highly unlikely to be the same engine for job growth in the next two decades that it's been in the past two decades. You know, from 2010 to 2020, Greater Houston was the fastest growing major metro in America by a long shot. And the reason for that is primarily the shale revolution, right? U.S. production went from 5 million barrels to 13 million barrels over that period of time. And, and by nature of being the energy capital of, of America and really of the world, 
um, Houston was the great beneficiary of, of, that, uh, of that kind of explosion of growth. I don't talk to anyone uh, in the incumbent oil and gas industry who thinks we're going to have that kind of growth in the, in the traditional you know, oil and gas business in the next two decades. So um, we're, we're just in for a, a, you know, a changing world and a different energy mix. And uh, we can't rely on the incumbent business to generate the kind of growth going forward they've had historically. So we, we need to find other places. And the energy transition is a great place to look. So what's the message to younger uh, individuals who might be just starting their careers? They have a lot of options they can consider. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of narrative out there about how the oil and gas industry is is not the future and all this stuff is changing. But we still need to attract the best and brightest uh, youngsters into this industry to to achieve the results that we're talking about here with this energy transition. So uh, our, our line is to, to young graduates trying to figure out where to carve out a career and what industry and what town, et cetera, that if you want, want to work on the next great dating app, you should move to Austin. But if you want to solve the world's most vexing problem, which is the energy transition, you should move to Houston and get your nose right in the middle of it. And we think that's a very compelling argument. Right. It, it is a challenge. It's a technological challenge. It's an economic challenge. It's a geopolitical challenge. Um, it, it has all sorts of interesting elements uh, and it's critically important to the world. So uh, we think there's never been a more interesting time to, to work in this business. Now, look, um, this business, if you will, is very broadly defined, right? There's the incumbent oil and gas business where we still need petroleum engineers and geologists and, and geophysicists to, to do what, and, and mechanical engineers, you know, to do what we've always done, which, which is find hydrocarbons and get them processed and get them to consumers so that they're used. Um, and we're going to continue to, to need that for, for quite a long period of time. But I think more and more, the companies who do that will also be figuring out how to, to do that with a much lower carbon footprint, uh, how to capture CO2 emissions at the point source and turn them into um, new materials and, and usable advanced materials. And we're going to have a bunch of new company formation associated with all that as well. So there's just a bunch of different places to play in all this. And one of the great strengths that, that we have is that there's a huge amount of overlap. I, I personally believe that completely replumbing the world's energy systems away from fossil fuels is just not practical because it's too expensive. And what that means is we're going to have to find ways to use our extant infrastructure uh, to uh, produce energy, but in cleaner ways. <clears throat> and that may include hydrogen. It may include carbon capture and, and storage. Uh, it, it, it's going to be an all of the above sort of thing. Uh, but I think this overlap between the incumbent industry and a newer emerging, more sustainable industry is, is that overlap is, is large and important. And we're highly unlikely to be able to meet these dual challenges without, uh, without it. And all of these things we're talking about, 
huge implications on the role of a leader. Think about the role of a CEO. I might ask you to put on your board hat because you serve on a lot of boards. You think about the future and uh, what that does to the profile of the, the energy leader of the future. Are you seeing some trends in some of the discussions you're having with CEOs and, and boards about what the leaders of the future need to look like in the C-suite? Well, every company is different. And I think you have to be really careful about making big sweeping generalizations about energy companies and and what they should be doing and what their leaders should be doing, you know, et, et cetera. Because it depends a lot what your core competency is. It depends a lot what the size of your balance sheet is. It depends a lot what the makeup of your shareholder base is and, and what they want, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so, um, look, I think, I think there are a lot of companies where if I was a CEO or a board member, I would say, look, you should keep doing exactly what you're doing, except do it more cleanly. You know, be, be, uh, be focused on your own carbon footprint, what, what comes out of your operations and try to minimize that. But if you are an upstream oil and gas producer, we need that and we're going to need it. And, um, and, and you should keep doing that. On the other hand, if you're uh, a very large, you know, petrochemical company and have kind of the facilities and balance sheet that will allow you to invest in end-to-end pl- plastics recycling in a big way, uh, then I could I could argue there's fantastic business opportunity in that, and uh, and that would be you know a, a sensible place for you to lend your expertise, and and so the board at a company like that is likely to think about that opportunity very different than would you know the board at a small you know land driller <laughs> or yeah. upstream company. Uh, so, uh, so I think we have to be very careful about making big sweeping generalizations about what's right for any individual, any individual company. Um, I think clearly, no, no matter the company, however, if you are a, a management team or a board, you, you need to be more and more focused on, on um, the, the CO2 footprint that's coming from your operations and you need to try to minimize it. And, and look, I, I deal with tons of energy companies. I don't know a single management team that's not focused on that. You know, it is now just it's part of the vocabulary. It's part of what you do. Uh, it's just like a safety briefing, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and look, the markets are demanding it as, as well. Uh, shareholders are demanding it. And I think appropriately so. So what impact do you see on the merger and acquisition side, let's say, in the next 18 to 24 months? Well, in the incumbent oil and gas business, it's just it's just now a more mature business, meaning it, it doesn't have uh, in the aggregate the same level of top line growth that it had in the previous decade. And typically, when industries mature, they consolidate. And you know, one of the things that's very obviously very obvious right now is we're not having the same rate of new company formation in the incumbent oil and gas business that we had. 10 and 15 years ago when we were very much in growth mode. Uh, so, so for example, just in the upstream, we had from, call it from 2008 to 2018, you know, 30 sizable upstream companies formed every year in the industry, right? And, and a huge amount of private equity flowed into this business. That private equity got deployed 
uh, across the industry and big new companies were formed. With that came a lot of employment, a lot of wealth creation, just fantastic for our economy. That's not happening now. <laughs> and mm. so we, we, we know that two and three and four and five years from now, we're not going to have that same sort of job growth associated with that new company formation because those new companies aren't being formed. Uh, and, and so, uh, so we have to, we have to find, find growth, you know, in, in other places and, and, uh, and that's what we're going to do. I'm, I'm highly, highly confident. Well, one of the things that I know is really important to you personally, you've been heavily involved in charity work in uh, philanthropic organizations. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, why that's been so important to you. And then also a message to emerging leaders out there about the importance of them giving back and making a difference in the communities that they serve. Look, my wife Phoebe and I have, have long felt that um, we have an, uh, an, um, an obligation or a real duty to be engaged uh, in our community and and to and to give back, uh, and we really have been since since a very young age. Our interests are quite broad, uh, but Houston has been very very good to us, and we have the capability to help make it a better place. and And so we want to we want to try and do that. I think a great strength of Houston over time has been the engagement of the Houston business community in the civic affairs of Houston and in the nonprofit. So whether it's social services agencies or the arts or higher education or, um, or, or you name it, the business community has long played an important role here. And that's part of the reason Houston's such a great, a great place to live. <clears throat> and so I really do encourage other business leaders and younger people to, to get engaged. And, and it's not just because we have an obligation or a duty to do so. It's also because it makes our own life richer, right? You meet lots of interesting people. Uh, you have fun doing it. It, it, just, it just makes Houston a better place to be. Uh, and so uh, I, I uh, have recruited tons of young people into the organizations uh, that, that I'm involved in and will continue to do that. And also encourage, encourage them to kind of find their own way, find things that, are, that they are genuinely interested in and passionate about and and lend their their time and their talent and their their treasure to helping those organizations help us. Well, outstanding, Bobby Tudor. I want to thank you so much for your time today, joining us. Some some great insights about the future of energy. Uh, I appreciate you joining us. It's been my pleasure, Ryan. Uh, and thanks to you for the uh, for for the good work uh, on this series that you do. It's a lot of you bring a lot of interesting people with interesting views. And I think it's a real service to the broader energy community. So thank you. You bet. And thank you everyone for listening again to Journey to the Energy C-Suite. Hey, take a minute and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else where you access your podcast. We would love to hear from you. And thank you again. And we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another enlightening episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.